0: Jeff Simon good evening everyone and welcome to social flight live I'm Jeff Simon we have a fantastic show for you this evening the amazing Corky Fornoff is here with us and we are going to talk all about lessons learned some flying tips things like that from his amazing career before we get started, just a few things. First of all, we uh, coming into the new year have another winner in our Fly to Win Challenge. Brian Green of Grand Haven, Michigan has won a, Zulu, a Lightspeed Zulu 3 headset. Be sure to go and check uh, out the socialflight.com and the SocialFlight mobile apps for Apple and Android devices. All you need to do is get this and go check in anywhere. We're giving more prizes away. It's uh, it just keeps going and going. I love to give things away. <laughs> it's uh, it's a lot of fun. So um, be sure to go and do that. It's completely free, and you actually have a really great chance at winning by just getting out there and participating. Uh, also, the Social Plate Live podcast is now available with recordings of all our shows on your favorite device. Just go wherever you get your podcast services. Do a search on one word social flight and uh, bring us up subscribe be sure to check out our youtube channel i really appreciate it. it keeps all of this going for all of you and lastly social flights faa learning system is in high gear right now you can go to social flight and completely for free on your schedule on your time you can take courses watch videos and be able to get wings credits if you're a mechanic you can get uh, aviation maintenance technician credits towards that awards program and if you're an amp with inspection authorization ia then you can actually get your renewal education uh, which is due by the end of March of this year. You can get that education through Social Flight again on your time. You watch it, a, uh, a course, you learn from it, you answer a quiz at the end, and you get a certificate printed out and credit with the FAA that you use towards your eight hours of required education. So be sure to check all of that out. It is, uh, it's just a great utility, and we're seeing just hundreds and hundreds of people using it constantly. Uh, and I love uh, I love that because they're all getting this great education, and our partnership with the FAA just grows stronger and stronger. Tonight's broadcast is brought to you by Tempest Arrow, uh, one of my uh, best kind of friends in the industry with their oil filters, their spark plugs, their tools, vacuum pumps, etc. Um, you know, this has been a very difficult time when it comes to aircraft components and supply chain. And it has been wonderful to see a company do so well through this in keeping all of us supplied with spark plugs, oil filters, all the things that we need. They do air filters now. And also, Tempestero isn't just those parts that we think of when we think of Tempest, but it is also there are other companies of Alcor and Stratus. Marvel Shevler and fuel control systems with precision air motive and consolidated fuel systems. So big thanks to them and uh, be sure if you talk to any of them to to mention us here at Social Flight, we're so grateful for their support. Now on to tonight's guest, the legendary Corky Fornoff, Hollywood's stunt pilot. J.W. Corky Fornoff has captivated audiences at air shows and on the big screen for over 50 years. He has logged over 17 thousand hours in over 300 different types of aircraft. Think about that. 300 different types of aircraft. He has, uh, in that time, he has flown over 3,000 low-level aerial performances in nine types of aircraft, including the T-6 Texan, the P-51 Mustang, the F-8F Bearcat, the Pitts Special, the Blanca Super Viking, the Christian Eagle, and the world's most famous microjet, the BD-5J which he piloted on the iconic James Bond 007 series. What you may not know is that Corky is also one of the most experienced pilots on the planet when it comes to managing emergencies. And Corky is here tonight to share just a little of that experience with us, as well as some lessons learned that just may save a life or two for the rest of us flying in the general aviation world with the sunny side up, at least hopefully most of the time. So buckle up and please help me welcome to Social Flight Live as I bring him on the line now, Corky Bornoff. How are you doing, Corky? Hey, how's it going, Jeff? Welcome to my model shop. <laughs> hey, thank you so much for joining us this evening. And um, yeah, let have people take a look at this. How amazing is this, that this is your little shop with countless models all over the place yeah. what's the yeah, story here before be we get going on how to how to keep things from from crashing what's the
1: story with this shop well I, I build scale models as a hobby and i like to build particularly a lot of the ones we've used in movies and uh, i've been doing it since i was 10 i've got some that i built when i was 10 years old and uh, it's just you know keeps my hands busy i come out here to, to write my stories you know i hope to get a A book going or actually I'm looking to start a a video blog, you know, on something like streaming and tell those stories because, you know, when we talk about them here, I I can only hit some of the high points. You can't go into the details of what made things happen or why, because they're really about um, people, places and things that I've experienced. You know, it's not just me. I didn't make it. It's all the people, places and things combined that made my story.
0: You know, I, I'm glad that you're doing that because I think having uh, an like an oral history, basically, of general aviation and of aviation as a whole, is so important to us. With so many legendary people, uh, kind of coming and going throughout history, and we need to we need to capture all of that amazing knowledge. And and gosh, there's so much of it stuck in your head, man, my friend. We need to get we need to get that
1: down where we can read it and read it. Well, you you know, Jeff, I've been very privileged. Uh, I wrote into the industry on my father and Bob Hoover's coattails. And Bob was a close friend of my dad's and uh, took an interest in me. And if it hadn't been for he and my dad, I'd have killed myself in the 51. You know, because as a young pilot, you do some stupid things. And you want to try and eliminate that. And hopefully some of these stories, somebody can pick up and say, gee, I know somebody that's been there, you know. But probably the best thing they ever told me when, when I started flying and uh, because I used to ride in the back of Hoover's 51s a lot of times when he and my dad would go to air shows and because America didn't have two seats. And then I'd clean his airplane and my dad's. And one of the first things they told me when we got started, you know, even when I was cleaning airplanes was the best thing they could ever tell me was not only know something, but understand it. You know, like a child. Well, know you can tell him and he'll know if he sticks his finger in the flame of a, f- a candle it's going to burn but you know what he doesn't understand it till he does that when he puts his finger in there then he understands it so and i found that a lot through aviation um you know for an example when i was um flying the t6 uh and i learned to fly in the t6 with uh, my instructor charlie hammonds and one day i had put in um a new airspeed indicator, and I wanted to get everything just right before I had it marked, you know? So I went up and I had the flaps and the gear down, and I'm getting, waiting for it to stall. And I had my head in the cockpit with a a little lead pencil tapping on the glass, you know, to try and make sure that nothing was sticking and I'd have it just right. And the damn thing snapped over into a left turn spin on me. Well, you know, it got my attention. So, I, was, I had plenty of altitude. But um, the first thing I thought of was, God, I got to get this thing cleaned up. I had the gear and the flaps down, and it goes into a spin strictly because of my negligence, you know, on not paying attention to having the ball centered and all that. And um, so I grabbed the gear handle and had that coming up, and it kept going around. And the second I put the flaps up, the damn thing stopped, stopped spinning. And um, You know, I thought about it and thought about it when I talked to my dad and and mentioned it to Hoover later on. He says, you knew you were spinning. Did you understand it? He said, what did you do that stopped it so instantly for you? I said, well, I retracted the flaps was the last thing. They said, and what did the flaps do? They're like spoilers. You destroyed the lift on both wings. In the spin, you have one wing flying and one wing not flying. So if you eliminate that lift, you know, it wanted to eliminate that rotation. And it came out and I got my attention. But those are the kind of things you know you need to kind of watch. So always, you know, not only know something but understand it.
0: That's fascinating. I didn't really think about that, but by the idea well, flaps that are, flaps are a spoiler. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and so often, I think when we're recovering from stalls or in other types of situations, we're thinking about adding lift to the wing that isn't doing something, but the idea of reducing it by uh, cleaning up the aircraft and what effect that that has, that's, that's, that's a really important way of looking at it.
1: Well, you just spoil the lift. In mm-hmm. fact, <clears throat> the way I used to land the BD-5J was I'd come in for a landing and hold it right off the ground and then I'd just grab the flap handle and slowly retract it and just roll it right onto the runway. You know, so they are, in effect, a spoiler also.
0: I've, You know, you, we, there's a lot of uh, folks that play, for instance, like, you know, Cherokees or, thing, or Warriors and things that they have, like, just a bar for the flaps, like you mentioned. And uh, it's interesting because you can kind of play that game on the runway of feeling what that effect is just by using that uh you using that uh le- almost as a lever in many aircraft
1: well yeah and particularly if you're you know you land and you're landing uh long and you didn't realize you landed along you know once you get it down right right down real close to the ground you can retract those flaps and you're going to be on the ground
0: hmm that makes a lot of sense absolutely um Speaking of that uh, BD-5J, I mean, since that is, of course, the the most kind of iconic, coolest, probably, uh, plane to be in any films, can you tell us some of the the challenges and stories uh, involved in flying that and and, uh, what
1: what kind of you learned about flying from the 5J? Um, The 5J was kind of a, a different airplane when I went to fly it, you know, as I said before, uh Beattie invited me up to fly it, and uh, uh, he wanted to put together a jet team. So I hopped into Bearcat. I lived in South Louisiana at the time and flew up to uh, Newton, Kansas. And all the way up there, I kept wondering, how could somebody take a stick and stick it onto the side? It didn't make any sense to me, you know. So once I got up there and checked out in the airplane, which was very interesting because they put it up on sawhorses. And you climb in and you work the gear and the flaps and everything else, you know. And then you go out and you do a couple of runs just holding the nose wheel off of the, the, the runway. And when you got that accomplished where you can feel all the controls, you know. And that goes back here again, flying the T-6. One thing my dad had me do was uh, he said, you know, I want you to start taxiing it. Don't take off. Well, you know, some things happen. But anyway, I was taxiing it, and as I got better at taxiing it, I'd get a little faster and so forth. But what they wanted me to feel was that in a stall condition, not flying, you can work the ailerons, you're working the rudder, you can feel the elevator, you know. So even after a stall, you know, you've got certain inputs you can use, which you notice that when you go through your training, you know, for stall recovers and so forth. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that that was very, in fact, let me tell you a funny story. My brother, who I'm very proud of, uh, retired from the Air Force and was, uh, one of his last assignments was, he was in charge, uh, this is Terry from Warnoff. He was in charge of advanced fighter uh, maneuvering and advanced, you know, combat maneuvering. And he called me up one day and he said, oh, we're working on this new thing and it's called PSM. I said, PSM? I said, that doesn't sound very nice. He says, well, it's post-stall maneuvering, you know, which the modern jet fighters do. And I told him, I've been doing that my whole life, you know, for certain maneuvers and everything. You know, that's exactly what we were doing. So, you know, you want to realize that you've got control of that airplane, even after it stalls. And it's up to you to recover and get it flying again in a normal situation. hmm Yeah. That makes a lot of sense um but the little jet was different because you're sitting your butt in, see what maybe a foot and a half off the ground you know so you got to get used to landing real low and what was it like otherwise was it a, is it a, was it Fantastic a difficult airplane. Airplane. um i'll tell you what what i compared it to i compared it to kind of taking off and landing like a bonanza you know uh-huh. and the the other thing um, that I found that in the air, except for the rate of roll, it reminded me of the A4 scooter. And I've seen some of your other interview, you know, people you interviewed talking about the scooter. And that is, that's one of the most true airplanes I've ever flown. It's just Everyone a seems to rave vehicle. about the A4. <laughs> yeah, it's a great one. I'll tell you some of the stuff I did, but, you know, we're going to talk about safety hints wow. But I actually... Um, uh, a friend of mine merton pellegrin uh had arranged for me to be at, at the flight test center for a couple of weeks in patuxent river and uh, another test pilot merton was doing the test work on the f-14 at that time and a friend of his pete pierce uh would take me up and one of the first flights i had we were chasing we were in a um, another a4 chasing an a4 single seater and um they were having trouble uh getting the generators were popping offline in certain maneuvers so they were trying to find what the problem was and i got to tell you we go up and we're in one a4 and and pete has me flying it and we're chasing this other a4 and he says okay we're going to do the first series well he pulls up vertically in this a4 and starts rolling it i mean it's got a 720 degree second rate of roll And we're up over 30,000 feet in the hard deck. If we weren't supposed to go below 30,000 feet and he's spinning this thing till it stops and after it stops, it starts to slide back and then it goes forward and it flips end over end over end coming down to about 30,000 feet. And I thought, holy hell, you know, I've seen a lot of wild things in airplanes, but never one tumble coming down, you know, backwards and um so i said to pete i said i want to that's something i want to try so pete and i you know we break away from that flight and we get it going and he has me pointed up and rolling it and then when it stops when it starts back down and flips over i experience g's like i've never felt not positive g's but g's that were trying to throw me out of the nose you know, usually you wow. have negative G or positive G is what you're going to experience, but not one. Even doing lumschovaks in pizzas and things, you don't get that kind of G. It was almost seven Gs throwing you straight forward out of the seat
0: because wow. you sit
1: right, you sit right up in the nose, you know. So we did that a couple of times, and then Pete says, "Corky, do you think you can do a lumschovak in this?" Well, I said, "Pete, it's not my airplane, and I know where the handle is to get out." So he said, okay, so we did. I pulled it up on a 45-degree angle and rolled it over and started an outside snap, and, man, we went around. But here again, it was that same kind of G wanting to throw you straight forward, Mm -hmm. you know, which was, uh, I had never experienced that in my life, and I don't know, other than a a jet fighter of that type that you could experience it in. But the thing about the A-4 is all you had to do was really kind of let go of it, and it just, bam. Mm-hmm. you know, it was flying again.
0: So, uh, Corky, let's start with something kind of like uh, basic for folks that are actually, e- you know, who maybe uh, either rent or own their own aircraft out there. Uh, and, and I'm going to throw you one that uh, people may have heard before, but it's kind of my pet peeve, which is getting people to learn and experience the envelope of their own aircraft, their right. the complete envelope. <laughs> I, it, it seems that, a lot of people can fly uh, the same plane for maybe even a decade and and stay so centered in that envelope where they're not flying anywhere near gross or they're not flying in, in, in anything that's density altitude challenged or anything like that, that, it, that they, they don't necessarily know where those danger zones are until they face it unexpectedly, let's say, in, in some type of a situation. And I, I personally remember early on with the, with the Grumman that I owned that I owned it for a while before someone came in that was extremely experienced and showed me what the plane could do with slipping and things like that. So what, what advice do you have for people or what can we learn about uh, having to do with understanding the envelope?
1: I would recommend that if, uh, if they don't already know that envelope, they should get with somebody that's very experienced in that airplane and go explore it because mm-hmm. you can end up in situations that you don't expect. And one of them I'll get into later is flying blind. You know, before any airplane I've ever checked out in, uh, you know, I did kind of a blind test. I could reach every control that I needed to reach uh, without seeing it, mm-hmm. you know. And three times in my career, I have been totally blinded. You know, wow. while it came back, it was, it was gone for 15, 30 seconds. But it was gone from one time in the Mustang from steam came into the cockpit you know another time uh, some black powder that we used um, in making movies for make it look like the exhaust is burning black called lamp black a canister exploded in the airplane it was a beach 18 and it just filled everything where you couldn't see and it filled our eyes and you know that kind of thing so one time opening up a coke in the bearcat now (laughs) i'll tell you don't ever do that i used to carry my Bearcat was really set up nice when I'd leave to go home from an air show. I had a little six-inch television that I could watch a football game from the West Coast on Sunday afternoon. And I would always get a can of whipped-in tea because it was not carbonated. And I'd put it in the airplane. And as I was going cross-country and had the football game on, I'd reach down behind me, grab that can of what I thought was iced tea, and shake it up, you know, just to mix it. You don't do that with a can of Coke at 14,500 feet. (laughs) And when I opened it, I mean, it literally filled with foam in my face, you know, everywhere. So you never know what's going to happen. You know, you can be flying along in your your Cherokee or your Cessna and going cross country and been in turbulence. And that Coca-Cola you think is safe is all shaken up. And when you open it, I mean, it just... It explodes like you can't believe. So, and that would temporarily blind you. It did. I mean, it was in my eyes and sticky, and that was a miserable flight. I mean, wow. everything in the cockpit was sticky. You know,
0: man. So there, there's. I, I, I'm still trying to wrap my head around
1: you watching television while flying a Bearcat. <laughs> well, it was. A, it was one of the first little portables, and I had it wired so I could plug it into the airplane, and because uh, I mean. You know, I love flying, but to me, probably the most boring thing is cross-country. Now, I'm always doing things, cross-checking the panel, um, you know, but it was, uh, it just made a nice trip home. But I would definitely get uh, somebody that knows that airplane well, and you know on your local airport who it is. Uh You know, don't take somebody that's just trying to be a big shot. You know, you want to get somebody that you know knows that airplane and go explore the envelope. Now, when you say explore the
0: envelope, so we're talking things like weight and balance. uh,
1: Well, you know, you want to stay with That's all pretty much mathematics in the the book. Inside the envelope. Yeah, I'm talking about, um, you know, I've talked with pilots that, um, man, they've never gone over a 45-degree bank. Hmm. You know, take it to 90 degrees. Do some stalls with somebody that, like I said, knows that airplane that really gets it breaking and going, Mm -hmm. you know, to recover. So, because you could end up there one day. I mean, we just saw on TV not two days ago, that airliner that crashed. And I mean, that's, I don't know what all the parameters are, but from my looking at it, I mean, he's in a steep turn. He's awful slow and he loses the left wing drops and it spins into the ground, you know? So you never know. Uh, I'll tell you one thing. And, um, and this was told to me um, by Bob Bishop, and I went up and tried it. When he was instructing, he said he would always show his his students that um, you know you're not always going to get a buffet on the tail before a stall. If you're skidding that airplane in a turn, trying to cheat and kick the you know kick the rudder around so you line up with the runway, and you pull on the a little bit, it'll depart without you feeling a buffet. Hmm so you know that's one of the the good things and i think a good instructor somebody that really knows that airplane can show you that to where you say gee these are things i need to watch and eliminate these stall spin accidents on final yeah because a lot of time when you see the footage that's exactly what the guy's doing he's trying to make that turn you know and he's using the rudder just to try and turn it Mm -hmm.
0: yeah that makes a lot of sense and um uh and the the other thing seems to be about when you're focused on you know you're not really doing a scan or you're focused inside the cockpit you're not you know look looking at different instruments I think many of us have experienced things where uh, planes start to get out of rig or start to, to or out of uh, out of trim um, when you're really not paying attention any thoughts on that right
1: yeah I usually I always when I'm in a pattern. Even if it's at a controlled airport, we'll roll the airplane 45 degrees each way, look you know, to scan the area out there. Mm-hmm. Um, I had uh, that gentleman, Merton Pilgrin, I told you about, he had hired me a couple of times as a contract pilot to fly for a company that he was uh, head of the aviation department. And one time he had me go on a flight with two of his pilots, very experienced pilots, very safe. And we were going into Jackson, Mississippi. And, um, we're letting down. It was in a Citation Seven, and I'm standing right there next to him, you know, as we're letting down. And um, off to my right, because I'm looking out all the time too. I'm scared to death of a midair, and I see a Cessna 185, probably a mile or so, mile and a half, and it's obvious to me with our descent and the way he's going, would hit him or hit hit us. And um, so I kind of let it go for a few minutes, and I said. Guys, I said, uh, look off to your right over there, and he he looked and he says, "Holy smokes!" He says, "There's an airplane." He says, "It's not on my TCAS, you know, because here again they were in the cockpit relying on that TCAS." And I said, "You know, you don't know if that's a farmer, and his transponder doesn't work, or it's out, or he doesn't have it on, or you don't know what it is." But um, that's why you always look out the cockpit. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And particularly yeah. when you're in a pattern you know roll it 45 degrees and look right right
0: now you have been uh, uh i guess i don't know what the word is whether it's unfortunate to, you have had a, a a fair number of unplanned landings of engine outs um what you know there's a lot of, there's an FAA has a program right now talking about you know the startle effect of when that happens what what advice can you give to folks about handling that situation when something happens um, and
1: you've, you've got to land? Um, I'll tell you the way I was taught. If the engine quits or it starts acting rough, the first thing that happens is your butt cheeks get tight. You say, what is going on? And then you have to be as calm as you've ever been in your life. And you instantly trade your airspeed for altitude you lose an engine, the only friend you have is altitude. So, I don't care 172, Bearcat, or Jet. You know, that altitude will give you more time to think. Now, as you're going up, you're trying to restart, you're switching the tank, you're putting the boost pump on, you know, things of that nature. Anything to do to try and get it started. Um, Once you get up there and you're at the peak of your climb, you want to go to your best lift over drag you know that's going to keep you in the air the longest you try a restart you ascertain the situation what could have gone wrong and at that point if you determine there's not going to be a restart you know you start securing things i mean now i usually i would turn off the elect- electrical system everything else unless you can talk to somebody that can help you You know, Mm -hmm. like you're talking to a tower or another airplane that can see where you are, know that you need help. Uh, But I secure everything. I mean, turn off the boost pump. You turn the fuel off. You know, and you're constantly, while all of this is going on, looking for a place you can land. Uh, I used to play this game going cross country. I know my dad did. Where could I put it if the engine quit? You know, and that's just a good little game. And get used to determining from your altitude how long something is on the ground. You know most roads, farm roads particularly, are a mile apart. You know, so you can kind of lay that out and, and figure in your own mind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, at your best L over D, you come down. Once you get close and you've determined the spot you're going to land, you want to go ahead and and set up for you know the imminent landing. Uh, so now. From that high point, also, if you determine there is not going to be a restart, I always put the prop into high pitch. That's less drag. Now, that prop isn't going to stop most of the time unless you really yank the nose up. So that prop's going to keep turning, and that hydraulic prop will keep working. And you can use that to help you decrease speed by, as you get down to where you're going to land, put it back into fine pitch Hmm. as a drag situation. Then you want to get lined up. And depending on your landing gear, if it's a tricycle gear airplane and you don't know about the field, you know that it's going to be hard or it's a road or something, you put the gear down in a tricycle gear airplane because it'll absorb a lot of the energy when you touch down. If it's a conventional gear airplane, like, say, a Mustang, I wouldn't put the gear down because you're going on your back and then you're trapped inside. Mm. So, you yeah. you know, you put it in on its belly. But, as you get down there, use your flaps as you need to, you know, once you're down there close to the ground, because that's another way to, to, to slow down. Also, what you want, to, and then you can also, once you're close and you want to put it on the ground, instead of flying a half a mile, you retract them so you put yourself on the ground, Okay. you know, to slow down. Um. Always, when you're 100 feet or so, open the door. If you're in a cockpit airplane, you open that canopy. Cause that's, you know, if you do go over, you're trapped and you yep. want to open the door in a tricycle gear airplane, because chances are you're going to, if it's a hard landing, you're going to bend something and the door could jam on you and yep. you never get it open, you know? So easy and then when it stops, get the hell out of it till you're sure nothing's going to blow up or burn or, you know, cause you don't know what the problem was. hmm and then, when you get away, get about a hundred feet away from the airplane, you thank God you're on the ground and watch the airplane before you go back to it. But those are just kind of the basic rules. You know all of those things happen in microseconds. yeah, but that's the way I was trained. Um, and I have seen some reports, um, and I've seen some interviews of people that survived uh, engine out. Uh, I think the biggest mistake in every one of those cases, is they never traded their airspeed for altitude.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, and um but which would have in two instances would have given the guy enough to make it to the airport.
0: Really? Yeah.
1: yeah. Um, yeah. do you remember the first time that you had to put an airplane down without an engine? Um the first time uh was actually taking off from Mozanne Airport in New Orleans. And um, I had just dropped my brother off uh, to visit my mother, and I taxied out, and of course, I knew all the tower guys, and as I taxied out, they said, Corky, we've got a stretch DCA on about a five-mile final. If you're ready to go when you get to the end of the runway, we'll check You know, the separation. I got to the end of the runway. They said, Corky, if you can go right now, go. You know, because they knew the Mustang would heat up. Mine never did heat up like that. But that's what they felt. So I took the advantage of it, and I took off. (laughs) And I was headed toward the river, and I got about uh, just as I rotated in my rearview mirror, I saw the Stretch 8 flaring out for landing. And I climbed up. I was probably, oh four or 500 feet. And I thought the engine was coming out the airplane. I mean, I had never seen that cowling twist like that and, you know, ripples down it and twisting. And so I immediately reached down and shut one mag off to see if it was one mag had gone bad. And um, then I went to both off and they kept running. So I only had one place I could go. I had turned to the west up the river and trying to to figure out what the problem was and hopefully get it running again. And it was on the top of the Mississippi River levee. Now you have a river road that kind of follows it and that levee snakes around. And I saw a spot up ahead that I estimated to be about 2,500 feet long. It had a slight bend in it and I committed myself. That's where I was gonna land. So I threw the gear down, you know, put the flaps down, slipped it in, slipped it back and forth. And I know you're gonna have people say, you don't do that in a 51. Well, if you taught right, there's a couple of little tricks to that. Like I said, Hoover and my dad saved me. I put it down. I thank God there wasn't any ruts in it. And because this thing's only about 20 foot wide, that little road on top, and it's you know, it's just dirt. So got it stopped. And off to my right, there was um, they have these little shotgun grocery stores which are maybe 30 feet wide and 60 feet long, you know, it's like out of an old house, big Coca-Cola sign on the side. So I knew I was safe. I'd go down there and get a phone because there weren't no cell phones. And I called my hanger and Joe Perio, who was our assistant there. I said, Joe, I said, I pulled the cow and I said, "Um, I'm sure one of these mags are bad. I opened up the cover of it and you know the phenolic wheels in there? Yeah it had shred some of the phenolic. So what happened was, was it wasn't firing when it would get around to that, you know, those blank spots. One side was firing, but also because of the tremendous twisting of the th- howling, it had pulled the P-lead out of the mag. So it wasn't gonna stop. The only thing I could do to, before I landed was to shut the mixture off. So, you know, it was a full dead stick landing. I had Joe bring the Magnetos I had just taken off the week before because all the Mustang guys were raving, you got to put these Northeast mags on. They're the best in the world in in place of the ones that came on the Rolls-Royce engine. So I changed the mag right there on top. Thank goodness, you know, there's a little plate you pull on the bottom of the oil pan to make sure your mark is there. You set that up in the top bid center, you know, in the number one cylinder. And I had all those tools. I had him bring them set it up and said, gee, I hope it works. You know, the bus box said it was gonna work. Got in and started it. Ran great. So I had one, I think it was Armstrong Mag and one Northeast Mag to get it home. And we called it up and then a couple people that had stopped down down by the river road came up and we had to turn the I didn't want to turn the airplane around because I had to drag the belly. Because you know the levee slopes down on each side. And uh, with a couple of driftwood parts from the river, we said, you know, we use the old trick of setting one driftwood chalk behind one wheel and turned it around. And then the other wheel, you know, so you turn it around in its own distance and started it up and took off. And um, you took off from a levee? Yeah. And dropped it down over the river. Well, we weren't going to pull it apart. And I had more than enough room, you know and i dropped it down over the river and you weren't i didn't want to go in that river because if you've ever seen the mississippi river it's full of whirlpools from the big ships that run up and down to the refinery mm-hmm. and when i got it home i changed the mag <laughs> you know put it right you but can i mean, only imagine ever, these days what would
0: happen if you considered taking off a mustang that you landed from a uh, from a levee
1: <laughs> well you know the, the thing people don't realize that um when i was flying the mustang around in my early 20 you know it was 2021 20, and people would tell me i was too young to fly that night and they didn't realize they had kids younger than me flying them in the war yep so um you know but we ch- we changed it the mustang and i have had some experiences that wasn't the first engine out i had in the mustang but it was um you know a great airplane do you, do you have a count
0: of how many times you've landed without an engine? Uh, 39. Thirty-nine times? I don't know yeah. if that means that you are exactly who you want in the cockpit or you are absolutely
1: <laughs> not who you want in the cockpit with you. Well, well, like that, 39 that would, times. That would have to be the passenger's decision. I'm the worst <laughs> passenger in the world. You know, there's several people I fly with that I feel comfortable that I could get in the back and go to sleep. One of them's my buddy, Murd Pellegrin, Charlie Hammonds, you know, uh, Kevin LaRosa, Clay Lacey, you know. Those guys I could get in the back and go to sleep. Other than that, I'm nervous on an airliner. But it's, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it's a, had 39 times that an airplane has let me down. <laughs> well, you got to realize I did a lot of the test work at Beatty when Bob Bishop and I were there. We did a lot of the the test work on the airplanes and uh, on the prop and the jet, mm-hmm. and um, you know those first reciprocating engines for the BD-5 prop want the best in the world. Mm-hmm. They later got that worked out, but you know. So, but here again, now that the BD-5 engine out, okay, you're about 400 foot a minute rate of sink, and you're going 21 feet forward for every foot down. So if you're a thousand feet. You know you can go a couple of miles, mhm oh, I, I didn't know
0: it, I didn't know it had that much that much glide to it. Oh yeah, oh, it's it's, it's, it's so clean. there's no weight. you know what if was it, it, what was it that caused so many
1: accidents from people in the in that?, uh, most of them were caused. The first one I ever looked at the FAA, um, happened to a guy I think in New Jersey. And he had an engine out with the early engine. He had used an automotive sealer for the tanks. And with avgas, it came loose, Mm -hmm. you know, and clogged his filter. And um, he put it down on his field. It was a long, long field. At the end of it was a barbed wire fence. And when I talked to him, he said, well, he said, you know, I didn't have any real experience in the airplane. So from the stall speeds I was getting, I added." five knots for each of my children and five knots for my grandmother and five knots <laughs> for my wife. And he floated a couple of feet off the ground all the way till he hit that bob wire. <laughs> he came out of it with no problem. You know, uh, the airplane right. is, the airplane. Were there any aerodynamic issues on that? Or was it? You know, I didn't, I mean, that airplane was so true. I, I mean, it was just, A true airplane. It was like the A-4. That's why I said I compared it to the A-4 in the air other than the roll rate. Mm -hmm. It had the same kind of feel. Um, Now, it is sensitive, but no more sensitive than a pits. And Mm -hmm. you are going to take a low-time pilot that wants to build one in his garage, you know, and put him in the pits. Yep. You know, it's the same kind of thing. You need some training. Yeah. And BD had a good training program. You know, I checked out, we checked out 75 people before Oshkosh one year when all the magazines were saying the airplane's dangerous, it's a killer, it's this, it's that. And uh, so we had people right in, and we had a good cross-section of of people. We had a decent engine in to check these people out in. They all had to go fly the trucker plane, which was a neat BD-5 attached to a truck on a boom in the front of it. And so you really got to fly it, you know, and if you could fly that, then we check you out in the airplane. Now, there were three instances here. First of all, the best pilot in the whole group was a young lady that had 35 hours or 36 hours total time when she came to us. She had just gotten her private. But every one of those 36 hours was flying a Cessna 185 in the Bush backcountry of Utah. You know, she had experience. She loved it. She flew it well. And then um, we had one incident that happened. Uh, thank God the guy came back alive. It was a priest. And he wanted to fly the BD-5 so bad and loved aviation. So he could never fly the truck or plane right. Well, as we're checking these people out, a guy named Frank Andrews, who was helping check these people out, it was lunchtime, and I went to lunch, and Frank came on. Well, the priest goes to him. And he says, I'm ready to go try the BD5. And Frank says, Did you fly the truck or plane? And he says, Oh, yeah, yeah. And he, Frank didn't ask him if he passed. So he puts him in the airplane. And by the time I come back, the priest is taking off. And he gets in the air and I see it going up and down and up and down, you know, and he goes out of sight like this. And I get on the radio when Frank tells me it's a priest. I thought, Oh my God, you know, we can't do this. And he started heading east. Well, I told the crew at the, uh, at the flight test center where we were to get my little jet out. I was going to go try and chase him down. He would never answer on the radio. Before I could get in the jet, he answered Frank on the radio. And he said, I'm sorry, I've been a little busy here. So we actually, I got on the radio and we talked him back to the airport and he made a decent landing. But that was it, you know. So, you know, those kind of things happen. But it's wow. just, it's very sensitive from the standpoint. Now, I didn't find it sensitive, but I think uh, pilots, unless you've flown some, uh, something like a PITS, would find it a little sensitive. Yep.
0: Let's talk flight controls for a minute. Uh, you've had some flight control challenges um, uh, in your time. One of them, I believe, was a Viking. Can you tell us about that? Yep.
1: Yeah, I, went, I had the Viking in home of flying an air show. There was a local air show, and they wanted me to, to come fly in it and at that time my bearcat was up north it wasn't in homa and um uh bobby and i had you know we had our jet team our you know and we had Blanca viking had sponsored us to fly shows in the viking also uh bob had flown it when i first met bob uh you know he had started flying the Blanca viking in their show so i went down there and i'm flying the show and um i did the eight-point roll, and I pulled out to the right to make a turnaround, and as I pulled out and started to to bank to the left, all of a sudden, the damn ailerons were locked, and I thought, my God, what is this? And um, so, you don't have an inverted system, so all I could do as it kept rolling, was when, when it would get inverted or start to get inverted, I would push it up as far as I could and let it roll back upright while it continued its roll. And we ended up doing five or six rolls, but I kept gaining altitude. That's, you know, my main thing. And as I got up there, and it was one of the shows, I didn't wear a chute. (laughs) So, yeah, lesson learned. So, as I get up there, I'm figuring, gee, can I land this thing and maybe get it close to the ground as it's rolling and so it lands flat or cartwheels or something? No, I didn't see any chance in that. So, I figured what I would do the next time I went inverted. I would push it real hard and shake this, the wheel. And when I did that, it came out. You know, I rolled level and just used rudder and elevator like some of the early remote remote control airplanes to come back and land. Now, a friend of mine who was a mechanic got in there and found a little 516 socket. On the Blanca Viking, you have um, on the ailerons, there's like a little guide with a roller in there and a ball bearing. You know that rolls in the sky, and it had got caught under there.
0: Wow! You know? So another piece so, of uh, something left, left, left from
1: maintenance, maintenance-induced failure. Well, you know, you stay calm. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. You know, I said it's not my time to go yet. I've got property here, so you know, <laughs> <laughs> I've got property here. <laughs> well, you, you know, you here again. It's I know I had a problem. Understand it. I understood that something was jamming them, whether it was under the instrument panel, you know, out in the, uh, you know, outs- outer panel by the aileron. The only thing I could figure to do or understanding the situation was to put it zero gravity, you know, any, well, first of all, you know, about uh, two and a half, three negative G's and then zero gravity it. And, um, cause uh-huh. you know, the strongest point of any airplanes is zero gravity. Hmm. The That's a really interesting this, idea.
0: of, Like, how do you shake it to try to to try to free something?
1: Yeah. Well, that was the only only option I had. I mean, I knew something had to jam it. So if if I did it to where it was zero gravity, and could try and, and loosen it, you know, mm-hmm. maybe whatever it was would come out.
0: Yeah. You know, uh,
1: um, Barry Schiff, your friend who's been
0: on the show a bunch of times as well, he had a a great series uh, and and a video in particular where he shows, you know, flying and landing a Cessna without any, without touching the yoke and using the doors and using other things to do it. Control failures can happen and and use whatever is at your disposal to get down. That's it. That's it. And I'm promised, uh, his son Brian promised me some outtakes, by the way, from that, uh, from the series that you did with him, that one of these days I'm going to get, I'm going to yeah, get
1: my yeah. hands on. <laughs> yeah, we did a bunch of stuff together. Yeah. That's awesome.
0: Uh, I'll show you something that I have here on my desk. Since you brought that up, this is completely unplanned, but I keep this as a reminder on my desk. This this is a flashlight with a big gouge in it in the side that just happens to have uh, have been jammed in uh, controls of a rental plane that my son Ben was uh, renting uh-huh. at one point. He actually didn't, it wasn't able to figure out what was going on and didn't notice it until it was really uh, uh, in, in flight and come, came around. And uh, um, yeah, we found that out. So maintenance can leave some things, unfortunately, um, that, that can cause you some trouble. And then you have to go to those, those lengths you're talking about right. to try to free something. And like you said, well, I the idea of unloading the plane to try to free something.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I was taught aerobatics. uh, Hoover and my dad were big on energy conservation and zero G. You Mm -hmm. can't believe the performance you can get out of zero G, you know, here again, no weight, no stall speed, you know, but you can still fly. That's how Bob did a lot of the maneuvers, you know, when I'd ride with him sometimes while I went up a couple times with him in the Shrike. And if I sat there and, told an instructor what, what he did in the top of the uh, Emmelman, you know, with the strike, he'd say, oh, you don't do that. That's not right. But I said, think about it and ascertain it. You know, you can roll an airplane. And when you start to roll, first of all, you start nose high. And as it starts to come around, if you try to hold that nose up with the rudder, it's going to end up snapping and stalling on you. But If you're there and you put in a little bottom rudder and a little G on the airplane, it scoops. You know, it just makes a nice scooping effect. And that's just one of the, there's lots of them in aerobatics, I could tell you. I get so upset when I go to an air show and I see aerobatic pilots, not all of them, because there's some great ones. But you'll see them do a loop and it looks like a scripted letter E, you know, up and down. It's not round. Uh Uh-huh. You know, you watch for that. Or Mustangs. I've I've got, I really get upset when I see a Mustang doing a loop and the guy is cockeyed in the top of the loop. It means he's not using the rudder. (laughs) And that Mustang, you, you live by the rudder. In fact, you live by all the trim systems on a Mustang. And once you know a Mustang, you can tell you know how to fly it when everything is second nature to you. You just reach the trim as you, you know, you go through the speed range. Wow. You're a tough customer watching an air show, huh? Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, and you know, there's so many things that I guess we aren't going to get to cover, but one of them was formation, which to me is the most dangerous thing you can do uh unless you're properly taught. Yep. When I learned formation, the first thing we did was my dad got two bicycles and we went out on a ramp. And he showed me rejoins, how to use your energy going out and coming back in for rejoins instead of just trying to use a throttle, you know, to jockey into position and things like that. He put me behind um, his Bearcat, and I was in the Mustang, and he said, now I want you to go about half rudder, just so you can see how fast things can happen. And when you're in trail and you put that rudder in, you man, you're gone. Just to show you when you get in close, you know, how precise you really have to be. Hmm. Uh, I've gone to a number of these uh, seminars or talked to guys that are gone through, you know, the formation training. And the thing that surprised me the most when I've asked them after they've come out of them, because I didn't attend the, you know, the formation meeting, but when they come out and they were friends of mine, I say, now, have they ever taught you the golden rule formation? And they said, no, what's that? I said, well, first of all, airplanes slide apart. They don't pull or push apart. If you ever touch another airplane, it's rudder out only. You know, because you're asking for trouble if you pull or push. Yep, that makes sense. Definitely. You know? And is you know the surprising thing is I said nobody ever said that. Wow. Said, Gee, somebody that, should. Yeah. Hey, yeah. I want to make sure we have we that we get to it
0: in time. There's there's a thing that, that you've talked about that uh I absolutely love, and it's the idea of of understanding um, airflow, whether it be around mountains and mountain waves or or valleys, right. all that. And you told me about looking at, and whether it was that you took your students or other people about looking at streams, like like yeah. going, just like you said with your dad taking you with bicycles, and practicing it that way. The idea that you can go and look at a, a stream or a river up close and and learn what you need to know about. Uh,
1: about that can you tell talk a little bit about that yeah well you know if every student or pilot remembers somewhere in his training some instructor or ground instructor said you're flying in an ocean of air now water and air act very similar if you go to a stream at yellowstone or any stream that has a lot of rocks in it you know you can sit there and watch the water flow over the top of the, some of those smaller rocks and boulders and it'll actually have a vacuum behind it because the wave comes up and goes over it, you know? So there's like an air bubble. And if you look down toward the bottom of it, you'll see the, the water speed up, particularly if there's like leaves or something in the stream. As it comes to where it's pinched between two rocks, you'll see how fast that water speeds up and carries that leaf through the rocks. So, you know, that was a very good lesson to understand you know, flying in the mountains. Now, as I told you before, on uh, this one particular movie, um, Heaven or not Heaven's Christmas, Desperate Hours, I had to catch a Porsche as it came out of a mountain that really wound around and was going through a gap that was 30 feet wide. Now, I was flying a Piper Aero store, and there was no way I could go through it level. So I had to make my plan. So I dived in and went you know about a 45 degree angle and the thing was to time it so i was right over the porsche as it came out into this valley <laughs> you know so i had several of the stunt guys i said uh, as we were prepping for this because nothing happens instantly i said guys i said we've been running about a 10 knot wind out of the west i said if you would i need you to drive down that road and i gave him on a map several checkpoints and just tell me what you're reading i'll fly over You know about 100 200 feet well it was about 10 15 knots where i was coming right down the the valley in the rocks and they had the wind meters that they use you know for these things for their stunts and they some of them recorded 30 and 35 knots when it was pinched through the rocks. so my advice to pilots is you really need to be careful flying in canyons in between rock formations While it looks like there's nothing there, unless you're in a machine that you can climb out 6,000 foot a minute, you could get blown right into the rocks. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so there's a big difference in the way you plan things and what you're gonna do. And density altitude is, I've had several examples I wanted to go through with you on that, and mountain waves, you know. I think my first experience As a student pilot, I was flying one of my first cross-countries. My dad and Hoover were at a show in North Island, San Diego. And I flew the SNJ from South Louisiana out to San Diego. One of my landings was at Yuma, Arizona. As I approached, the controllers tell me, you know, beware, it's 118 degrees. We're shutting the airliners down. I never realized they shut it, the, but they had something to do with the Eepers and so forth and on the early jets. So I come into land and I'm figuring, well, I'm going to fall out the sky, you know, with density, altitude and everything. That damn airplane must have floated 5,000 feet because as I got down close to touching down, I could, the heat waves were so bad coming off this black asphalt runway that they were creating a thermal. Wow. And the airplane, I finally had to put, stand it up on the gear to get it to land, you know, because it's going to keep you in the air. I mean, it's nothing but a big thermal right over that runway. Now, when I went to take off, man, it took me a long ways to get airborne. And I figured with all those thermals, I'd just jump in the air, but that wasn't the case. So, you know, density altitude has many different forms.
0: <laughs> That's fascinating. It never occurred to me. That, I mean, yeah, I, I would have thought, You know, you'd be at a higher ground speed. You you know, you you'd take up a lot of runway. um, But just out of the speed that you were doing, but I would never have thought about those. The what we see, of course, the thermal of heating that, and and all the air rising off the pavement.
1: And you get out and you get particularly on a black asphalt runway, in the southwest when it's 118 degrees, you can imagine what the temperature. In fact, I'll tell you how hot it was when I fueled up before I got out of the cockpit. The line boy ran up. With a couple pieces of carpet. And it had started to melt the bottom of my tennis shoes. That's how hot it was. You know. (laughs) You know. These are. You know. Just some of the things you got to realize with density altitude. It's not only taking off. Sometimes depending on the landing surface. We were at an air show in Corpus Christi. And the Golden Knights had a little guy they called the Indian. And great guy. He couldn't have weighed, it didn't look like he weighed a hundred pounds. He jumped and he was over the ramp at the air show. Nobody thought he'd ever come down. And he keep turning and staying over it. And I bet you when he touched down, he wasn't coming down a mile an hour. You know, so you got to be, it's, you know, it's not only that the, you know, the air is thinner. Sometimes that heat's going to cause a lot of, you know, thermals. Hmm. Anything
0: else having to do with density altitude that, that you think about?
1: Um. Well, other, we can talk about it in another show if you want to, but the um, um, personal experience making the movie, uh, The Getaway, uh, we had to work in a very close short area i had to come over a, a building this was actually shot in a horseshoe shaped ring of cat houses in mexico and that was part of the story malik bow and kim basing are moving and i had to come over this thing and drop down and land and i only had about 1300 feet from the end of this building to this telephone wires that were going across mm-hmm. so Charlie Hammonds taught me this trick flying seaplanes. You learn from everybody. I mean, nobody knows it all, but if you get exposed to all of it, you can use all the little tricks. You know, Charlie taught me to fly seaplanes. We'd go into canals that had trees on both sides, just wide enough that the wingspan would fit. But the only way you could get into these canals, some of them were blocked off at each end that the oil companies dug in South Louisiana, was you come in with full flaps and you come down about 45 degrees. And as you go to rotate, because you don't have much speed to rotate, but when you rotate, you give it a little burp of power, just boom, you know, just boom, just enough to, to break that, you know, you're ready to sink and to pull you forward a little bit and land. And that's the technique I had to use to land in this ring of cat houses. Wow. Now, wow. as the day went on, we'd start shooting that at seven in the morning. And by 10 o'clock, I said, that's it. Because I couldn't, I, I didn't have enough room to get over the wires. And I watched that distance go on the Cessna, light loaded Cessna 185, just grow at 100 feet, you know, in a half hour. And that's wow. the most rapid rate I've ever seen. But it was a perfect example of density altitude. Wow.
0: Wow. So, last that's tip perfect. before, uh, or area or topic before we have to go the um, uh, landing techniques. Um, you, you, I know you could write. You could do a book. We could do hours just on landing techniques. But yeah, well, a couple of things
1: for us. Two of them. Yeah. Let me tell you. First of all, I'm gonna tell you this one, and this is going to get a lot of reaction for you, probably. I have checked out three people that were friends of mine and didn't sign any book because I'm not an instructor, but they had never flown a tail wheel, and I checked them out in the Le Swift Swift Fury, and um, the biggest thing the tailwheel, is to un- know and understand. You know if you push the left rudder, you're going you go left. You push the right rudder, you're going right. So I would have them taxi, and as we taxi a long taxi, I'd have them increase the speed a little bit. And once they could handle all of that, they never had any problems with takeoff or landing. I said, land it like you land your 172, but make sure you're straight, you know, wasn't teaching them tailwheel landings at that time, but, you know, put it on the gear, make sure you're straight when you lower the tail. And this was done in within a half an hour. And none of them had ever flown tailwheels before. Wow. So it's a taxi. If you get the taxi down and they're comfortable with the taxi and understand they push left, they're going left. I think I told you the story with Harrison Ford.
0: Tell me again.
1: Well, we were... He, they had um we were using the beavers over there and they had um and harrison had about 370 hours at that time and so they had these two guys that were specialists in beavers and um older gentlemen and um they weren't getting their job done with him so harrison came to me one day and he says corky will you go fly with me i said sure so we go out to the airport and uh, the night before I talked to these two guys in the uh, bar and I said, what's your problem? I said, I knew you guys are more than qualified to, to check him out. They said, well, you know, you start to wander and I'll take it away. And I said, why? Well, that's Harrison Ford. If something happens, man, I'll, I'll my reputation to be ruined if I was in an accident with Harrison Ford. So as Harrison and I go out, <clears throat> I have him taxiing and then I had him taxiing a little faster. And then a little faster. And by the time we reached the end of the runway at Hului Airport in Hawaii, I said, okay, Harrison, let's you know, let's go. I'm ready. He's ready. He puts the power to it. And yeah, he wandered a little bit, and, you know. But you know what? He only did it about two or three wanders left and right. And then he hit it nailed. And we went off and we flew. we shot a bunch of landings. And we come back and we land. And as we're taxiing in, he says, Quirky. Why don't you yell and scream and take the airplane away? I said, why? I said, you hadn't done anything that was beyond my capability to recover the airplane, and you were doing everything right. So why am I going to take the airplane away? You know? And then he went on. I was so comfortable with him. He's such a competent pilot. And everybody thinks just because he's an actor, he isn't. Very competent pilot. Very dedicated. I mean, we went over the ocean, and I hit him. Because I had him shoot some of the scenes. I had to be in the airplane with him, you know, by insurance and everything. But uh, I told him, give me 10 feet over the ocean, which is dangerous. But I was watching it because you're looking in the water, you, and particularly in Hawaii, you're looking 30 feet deep before you think you're seeing the water, you know. And he yeah. did shit. He just did everything right. And uh, so I actually sat there on a number of shots. In fact, I got so comfortable with him, I had him landing on this... Little twelve hundred foot runway they made for us for the movie, and um, you know worked out great. That's We've been great. great friends ever since. Awesome.
0: Well, when it comes time for us to get this Mustang behind me in the air, uh, I'm going to get some tips from you, my friend. We'll, uh, okay. See if you can, well, you can
1: I was going to give you better. the best. Going to give you the best tip. You got time? Yes, sir. That's the best tip, and I have told this to many instructors who have come back and thanked me. And here again, it's know the situation and understand it. When you come into land, don't pull all the power off, okay? When you come into land, there's a sweet spot, just like a seaplane when you put it on the step. You can feel it, whether it's pulling or drag, you know? Your butt will tell you whether the prop is pulling you or it's drag. Find that sweet spot where it's not pulling and it's not drag, and that airplane will land itself. Wow, I had you know, not thought about that, but that makes a lot of sense. Now, I won some money on two different bets. And I was using a Beach 18. In fact, the one I told you, I got blinded by the black powder. And um, it's got a high time Beach 18 pilot hauling cargo. And we're coming in to land one day and he says, you know, you can't three point the Beach 18. I said, why? He says, well, you, you just can't, the tail will fall out. I said, watch. So I came in and I used that technique, made a perfect three-wheel end and he said, "How the hell did you do that?" I said, "When you pull all the power, you're disturbing all the air that gets to the tail. You got drag on the prop, that prop's becoming an air brake. If you keep a little bit of air flowing over it, the airplane's going to fly and land. you know So we went out and I showed him and he, and you can feel it where it's not thrust and it's not drag. I did it with a Bristol B-170, which is bigger than the DC-3, uh, in a movie in New Zealand, and we I did a double engine out landing with that airplane for the movie. I didn't lose an engine, but this guy told me the same thing with this Bristol. Well, you can't you can't three point this airplane because the tail falls out. So we were going into Queen'sland or Queenstown, New Zealand, and I said, watch. The same thing. He says, how the hell did you do that? And he flew him in the military. And once I showed him and he went up and did it, he says, I can't believe it. So it's (laughs) no, no, but understand what's happening. No, but
0: understand. That makes so much sense. And that uh, you've blown my mind again, Corky.
1: I love it. Well, (laughs) I hope they learn something, particularly be safe. Safety is paramount. Like I said, I've never done a stunt where I said, here, hold my beer and watch this. Doesn't happen. Right.
0: Well, that's absolutely fantastic. I hope you'll come back on the show because we have so much more to talk about. Well,
1: that's up to you. You're the captain.
0: (laughs) Excellent. All right. Thank you very much, and you have a good night. You too, Jeff. All right. Take care. And to all of you, thank you so much for taking time out of your evening to join us here on Social Flight Live. We'll be back next Tuesday on January 24th with AOPA President Mark Baker. going to be a wonderful evening about learning what is new at AOPA and all of the great work that they are doing to support and protect our rights to fly. On Tuesday, January 31st, uh, if you've ever seen the uh, show Fly with Bruno from both Instagram, YouTube, etc., Bruno's going to be here joining us. He's a wonderful, wonderful guy with such warm enthusiasm for general aviation, and I'm looking forward to having him here on the show as well. And then on Tuesday, February 7th, the incomparable Rod Machado will be here for a humorous and educational evening talking about so many different topics that rod is known for he's just he's he's a great instructor a wonderful human being and of course he is funny funny to boot it's just it's just going to be a lot of fun until next time i'm jeff simon for social flight thank you for joining us and i wish you all blue skies